Jesus says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all, the, all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is God's Word. You may be seated. In this sermon series, I, I aim to... Uh, Help us rediscover what matters to Jesus and what should matter to us as well. And as you may recall from last week, Jesus began this Sermon on the Mount with describing the norms of the kingdom or the Beatitudes, the character of kingdom people. And now he shifts our attention to the relationship of his kingdom to the world. So how should his people interact with the world around them? That's the question. How should we interact with the culture around us, the people who are not part of the kingdom? And Jesus answers, as salt interacts with food and as light interacts with darkness, so should we interact with the world. So let's consider our text under three headings. First, let's make sure we understand the picture that Jesus has given us, the metaphors of salt and light, so the picture of kingdom influence Secondly, the practice of kingdom influence. So what should we do? How, we should, how should we act? And finally, the power for kingdom influence. The picture of kingdom influence, the practice of kingdom influence, and the power for it. Okay, Jesus is using two metaphors, familiar things, even to us today. I mean, I, I don't think there's a whole lot of cultural disconnect here. We all understand salt. We all understand light. And Jesus often used these very familiar realities and then communicated spiritual truths through these analogies. So let's make sure we understand these two metaphors. First, Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, salt has two main functions, and today as well as in Jesus' time. First, it preserves food from spoiling. It preserves food from going bad. It's important, of course, in a time before refrigerators, but even today, for example, I come from a pickling culture. Uh, many a winter meal uh, was, was really consisted of of pickled vegetables, all the produce gathered in the summertime, a lot of it was pickled or canned and then used throughout the year. And so if you ever uh, celebrated New Year's with us, you, you probably noticed that most of the things on the table at a Ukrainian New Year's party are pickled things. So a lot of salt, and salt used to preserve things like, of course, cucumbers, but we pickle really pretty much anything, um, especially fish. Uh, it's delicious. So I understand the role of salt in, in diet. Um, of course, you can have too much of it, but it preserves food. It allows you to keep this food available to you for much longer. And secondly, salt brings out the flavor of the food. Most of us put salt on almost every dish. 
And the reason is because it, it brings out the taste. It allows us to taste the dish. Now, notice that Jesus' emphasis here as he shares this metaphor is on the usefulness of salt. He says it's only useful if it's salty, if it maintains, if it remains salty, if it keeps its properties. If salt is not salty, there really is no other use for it. So you might as well throw it out. It's useless. And then Jesus talks about the light. So the other metaphor is the light. And you'll find many parallels. They're actually communicating the same truths from slightly different analogies. But Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now again, something very familiar to everybody. A city set on a hill, visible from a long distance. And of course, today, maybe this analogy is not as stark for us. But if you grew up without electricity and there's a city miles and miles away on a hill, you would see it and actually give you light wherever, wherever you are. But the point is well taken here that light allows us to see. So a typical oil lamp would, of course, would have been put on a stand to give as much light as possible for the house, for people in the house. And it would be ridiculous to cover it with a basket or anything to prevent the light from illuminating the room. Again, the emphasis here is the same as in the salt metaphor. The lamp is useful only if it is allowed to shine. So in both examples, the distinct properties of salt and light are to be applied. Now, what is light supposed to do? Well, it has two main functions, very much like the salt. First, light eliminates darkness. It pushes darkness back. And much like salt that prevents food from going bad, light prevents the world from being in the dark. It pushes back the darkness. And secondly, light makes things visible, much like salt that brings out the flavor of a dish, light reveals what is already there. A city on a hill is made visible by light. A light, light illuminates the house and allows people to see what is there. And lastly, let's notice that both salt and light are necessary for life. Salt is needed for preserving the food that would otherwise go bad, and light is needed to illuminate the house that otherwise would be dark. Okay, I just want us to understand, make sure we get the metaphors, we get the picture. And now, here's what's really important. Let's apply these metaphors, let's apply this picture. How can we, understanding these metaphors, apply them and then create a kind of life for ourselves that actually reflects our being salt and reflects our being light in this world? So let me give you four application points, four application points. If you want to exert kingdom influence on others, here's what we need to focus on. Number one, be distinct. Be distinct. Cultivate your contrast with the world. Cultivate your contrast with the world. Now, as we saw, salt is only useful if it keeps its distinct properties. Otherwise, it's useless. There's no, no point in having salt. You just might as well throw it out and have people walk on it. Light is very different from darkness. Putting a basket over the lamp is making it blend into the darkness of the room, and it makes no sense to do that. The value of kingdom influence on the world is in its difference from the world. The value of kingdom influence on the world is in its difference from the world. This is a, a key thing for us to understand as Christians, especially today. 
Now look at what the Apostle Paul says in Philippians 2, 14 and 15. He just makes the same point uh, with a different, different words. He says, Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. So Paul is saying, Christians shine as lights in the world because they are different from the world. They are blameless and innocent in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. The paradox of the Christian witness is that the more we become like the world, the less the world needs us. The more we adapt ourselves to the culture, the less appealing our faith is to the culture. The less offensive we are, the less attractive we are. Now, this, this paradox is, is well illustrated by the decline of mainline liberal churches in the West in the last, let's say, 100 years. There was a movement, there is a movement today, but it's kind of on the decline, as I'll show, but there was a movement, especially throughout the 20th century, uh, among many Christians to say, let's remove the offensive bits of Christianity. So let's remove anything that that, that is in conflict with the modern sensibilities, be it moral sensibilities or scientific sensibilities or anything else that the culture says just doesn't fit. And Christians said, okay, let's remove it. And then more people will become Christians. More people will believe in Christ. The churches will grow, will have a greater influence on the world. And so things were removed gradually. Things like belief in the supernatural. So Christian teachings like the virgin birth of Christ, the physical resurrection of Christ, the miracles of Christ, the miracles in the Christian life, all those things were, were removed. And, and, and Christians said, we're just not going to talk about it. We're not going to push that because that's offensive. It seems unbelievable. The idea of exclusivity of Christ, that only through Christ can anybody be saved, that only through Christ you can find God. Christians said, you know what, that's offensive, let's just remove that because there are many faiths, there are many religions, so we'll just be one of those and let's just, just point to other things that everybody agrees with. Or commitment to traditional sexual ethics or traditional marriage. You know, many denominations walked away from that and said, that's too offensive, that's, that's something that makes the world not like us and makes the world not believe us. And so let's give it up. Now, once all those things were gone, so were the people. I mean, it's, it's very easy to show that liberal churches are empty, liberal seminaries are closing, and, and that whole movement is, is almost gone. Why? Well, here's the reason. There is very little reason to belong to a religious community that is no longer religious and simply mimics the larger culture. Why? Why should I go to church, adjust my schedule, contribute financially, create a, a whole new lifestyle if what they say is exactly what everybody else is saying? There's no reason. Why? Why would I waste my time? And so, of course, many people caught up with that and said, I don't, I don't want to be a Christian. It's the same. It's the same. When, uh, when we moved into our house in Chicago, when we moved to Chicago, uh, many, many years ago, um, somebody related to me by marriage said, let's paint 
all the rooms upstairs different shades of yellow. And Jillian said, this is a theory of design. <laughs> and we did. And so the hallway was a certain light of a certain shade of yellow, and the bedrooms were different shades of yellow. And you know what it looked like, to me at least? It just all looked yellow. <laughs> the problem was when you wanted to touch up and, and fix something, right? It was impossible to find the right kind of yellow. No, we kept all the cans of paint, as anybody does, right, in the basement. You have all the cans of paint. But you can't tell anymore which belongs to which room, because it's all yellow. And many Christians are like that. If you compare a Christian to the world, or you compare a particular Christian church or Christian movement to the world, you just say, well, they might be a little bit different. There might be a different shade of yellow, but they're still all yellow. It's the same. There's no difference. There's no distinction. Now, if you look in the history of the church, the church was at its best, at its greatest influence, at its most powerful impact on the world, on the culture, when it was the most different, when it was the most distinct. I mean, it's, a, it's amazing to look at the beginnings of the Christian church, and, and there are just great books written about it that are documenting how different Christians were in the context of the Roman world. I mean, it's, those are just great reads for us to, to go back and see what would people, what did they think? Your regular Roman or regular Greek or regular barbarian, what did they think of Christians? And what you discover is that we think it was just another religion growing. But they thought this is a religion like no other religion. The reason Christians were persecuted, at least in part, is because they were just so odd. They were so strange. They were so different. And so the Roman world, the Roman culture, they didn't know where to put us. They didn't know what to do with us. So I'll give you some examples, and, and I'm happy to give you more resources on that, to kind of, because this is, this is a great way to understand how Christianity can, can interact with the larger culture, and I think the early Christians did it really well. They were both offensive and attractive, and that's the paradox. We need to be both repulsive to an unbeliever, to the larger culture, to the point where they would think we're offensive to them, and at the same time, that same distinctives, that same difference would make us attractive to the world because we're so, so different from them. Okay, so, so let me give you some examples. The early church was shockingly multi-ethnic and multiracial. Now, I say shockingly because at that time, religion was defined by your ethnic group. You were of a certain faith, you worshipped a certain god because you were from a certain town. You were from a certain clan, certain tribe. And Christians said, that doesn't matter. And that was a, it was a, just a crazy idea to say that churches, religious communities, could be comprised of people from different parts of the world, different cultural experiences. The early church practiced an ethic of love that was, again, it was, it was just unacceptable to the Roman culture. We think, oh, every religion is about love. No, that's not true. Christianity is about love, and that's distinctive to Christianity. And so when Christians came on the scene and they were saying things like, you should forgive your enemy, everybody said, you're crazy. <laughs> you should kill your enemy. And so when they were forgiving their enemies, even those who were persecuting them, their oppressors, 
It set them apart. And people didn't know what to do with them. Who are these people that they're not hating their enemies? They're willing to bear persecution for, for their God? During the plagues uh, and you know, urban plagues where there's terrible things, you know, just wipe out half the city. But during those plagues, Christians cared not just for their own, but for everyone else. Wealthy pagans would leave, Christians would stay, and they would nurse the sick, often dying themselves, catching the plague themselves and dying. And, and pagans, even you know, committed pagans, would write things and say, we don't understand why they do that. First, they don't understand why they don't fear death. But secondly, why are they committing their lives to people who are not even from their church? They're not even from their tribe. And they're doing that. They valued life, including the lives of infants abandoned in the alleys by their pagan neighbors. Now, this was the very common practice. If you got a baby you didn't want, whether it's the wrong gender, whether there's a baby with disabilities, whether it's just another baby you can't feed, they would just set the baby out in the alley. And the baby would either die or somebody would pick them up. Now, only two people picked up those babies. Either those who were going to raise the baby and, and sell them into slavery or prostitution, or Christians who would raise the baby as their own. That's part of the reason Christianity grew so much. Sociologists tell us that they have so many marriageable women, you know, because a lot of the babies left in the alleys were girls. And all of a sudden, Christians have all these beautiful women who are available to be married, and people are converting just to be married. <laughs> now, this, this is, I'm just telling you how crazy these things were. This is how the church actually developed and grew. They did things, things that nobody could understand. They didn't have categories to, to place them in. They were incredibly generous to the poor. And again, Everybody was generous to their own poor. But Christians were generous to everybody's poor. Different ethnic group, different town. They would send money to other cities. I mean, they would feed the hungry without demanding that they would convert. And then people would convert. Because they saw this expression of love that it just didn't make sense to people. Early Christians had a countercultural ethic when it came to, to sexuality. Sexuality in the, in the world of the Roman Empire was basically about power. If you had more power, you could have sex with people who had less power. That's how it worked. Nobody could say no if a more powerful person demanded a sexual favor. Now, Christians came along and said, oh, no. Sexual ethics apply to everybody, and the sexual ethic is you are committed to your spouse or you don't have sex. Again, it's a revolutionary idea. For us today, we say, oh, these are traditional things. Yes, they became traditional at a certain point. But they were revolutionary when Christians started practicing them. The early church had such a tremendous effect on the Roman world precisely because it was so different. It was so distinct. It was so different that it attracted people to it. People said, there's got to be something to it. They are people like we've never seen before. They don't live like we live. We can't find a parallel to what they are. And so they were drawn to them. And that's part of the reason why the church grew. So the challenge for us today is to remain distinct. 
and for some of us to become distinct, but for most of us to remain distinct. Our culture today is exerting incredible pressure on the church to conform, especially, I think, right now in two areas, in the areas of sexuality and diversity. Now, sexuality and gender identity is presented as a matter of personal freedom and expression. This is the defining understanding that you understand your sexual expression as a matter of personal freedom. This is what I want to do to be fulfilled. And then diversity, ethnic and gender diversity and otherwise, is presented as a matter of power, as a matter of conflict to be resolved. Many Christians today are buying into these ideas and practices and becoming like our culture. They're losing their distinct properties as salt and light. And so they are losing their life-given kingdom influence on the world. What I'm calling us today, I'm calling us Christians, I'm calling us specifically evangelical Christians who affirm the authority of Scripture, who say we believe what Jesus says, I am calling us to simply stick to what Jesus says and to remain distinct from the world. I'm calling us today to hold on very tightly to the biblical teachings and practices. I'm calling us to keep rooting both sexuality and diversity in love. Our distinctive ethic is an ethic of love. So when we come to issues of justice, we have to apply love to justice. When we come to the issues of freedom, we have to apply the ethic of love to freedom. And I am not giving you a lot of specifics on these two issues because Jesus is going to deal with these things in the Sermon on the Mount. We'll be talking a lot about sexual ethics. We'll be talking a lot about anger and injustice and those things. So we'll be dealing with great detail with that as we go on. But I want to show us how different the Christian perspective is on these things. So when we say diversity, what we understand as Christians as diversity is different from what the cultural understanding of diversity is. And we can't simply sign on to what they say. We have to process it through the lens of the gospel. And there are things that we'll agree on, and there are things that we will disagree on. But we have to remain distinctly biblical. And the same with sexuality. You know, the world is, is, is strongly pushing us to conform. And we cannot do that. We cannot do that. Because we trust what Jesus says. And if we trust him... We also have to trust him that what Jesus says is actually the best for sexuality. It's actually the best understanding of gender. It's the best understanding of human relationships. Doesn't being distinct in the culture often result in persecution? Yes. This is why Jesus ends the section on the Beatitudes with persecution. He says, blessed are you if you're persecuted. He says, blessed are you if you are so distinct that the world doesn't know what to do with you and some of them will believe and some of them will try to kill you. He says, this is a blessed state because you're supposed to be different. To be different is to be marginalized. To be accepted by the world is not to be different. It's not to be distinct. But to be different, to be distinct, is to be marginalized and to accept that role in the culture. 
but it's from the margins of society, which is what the church has always done. This is what we've always done best with, is from the margins. From the margins of society, we can offer something the world does not have. And sure, darkness opposes the light, but it can't overcome it. And so we'll keep bringing the light into the darkness. But we can only do that if we have the light. We can only do that if we are still remaining properly salty, properly shining. You see, if we're not that, what do we have to offer? And many churches today, unfortunately, find themselves in that position where they have a platform, but they have nothing to say. They think they have influence, but they don't have any goals that are different from the cultural goals. So that's number one. We have to be distinct. We have to cultivate contrast with the world. And so I'm encouraging all of us, myself, our church as a whole, the evangelical movement, everybody who would listen, I'm encouraging us to stick with Scripture and to remain different, remain distinct from the culture. Now secondly, how do we work out this kingdom influence? Secondly, be there, be there. Cultivate your contact with the world. Not just contrast from the world, but contact with the world. You have to be there. We are the light in the dark world. We are the salt in the decaying world. We have to be there to be an influence. If you're not connecting with the world, if you're not talking to anybody in the world, if you're not there, if you're not present, you cannot have any influence. And this is the point that is personally convicting to me. And I will confess to you this morning that I am not as present in the world as I should be. And yes, my main job is here with you. I'm to pastor you and teach you, and I love doing that. But as a Christian, I need to be in the world. I need to have many, many relationships with unbelievers, those who disagree with me, those who are opposing my views. I need to be engaged with many people who need my help, who need my care, who need me to be there for them, even if they disagree with me. I am not doing as great in that area as I should be. And I need to get much more creative. And I ask for your accountability. Ask me. In a month, in two months, ask me how I'm doing with that. Some of you, you're working secular jobs. You're there. Great. Some of you belong to all sorts of organizations. Some of you know a lot of your neighbors. This is, it's great that you're doing that. You have to be there. You have to be present. And if we are present in the world, two things will happen. One, we will hinder the world from decaying, from completely giving into evil. The Christian presence prevents the world from going completely bad. Just as salt preserves meat, we preserve the world. There are a lot of historical examples of the Christian influence that benefited the whole culture. I talked about the early church. That's a great example. But we can also look at the 18th century England and America and the Great Awakening, John Wesley, George Whitfield. The country was changed because of Christians. So many people became Christians that they lived differently, and that created a whole bunch of social movements that are actually going on till today. I mean, there were massive shifts. For example, orphans were cared for. Lots of orphanages were, were started during that time. George Mueller is one of the people you, you may know was a Christian part of that movement. 
But there were so many things that happened that benefited Christians and non-Christians alike. And so the world was pulled back a little bit from decay. It got a little bit of salt. It just got a little bit more preservation. It got pickled a little bit by Christians. And so it got a little bit better, a little bit tastier. Now, we can talk about the pro-life movement in America in the last 400, four, well, four, I was going to say four decades, but it's probably going on much longer than that. But four decades, the last four decades, the pro-life movement has saved a lot of lives. And we have to celebrate that. We have to say that, and not all those lives were Christians. M many of those people are not Christians, but Christians stepped in. And there was a need, and the world was going somewhere. There was a direction, and the Christians are pulling it back. And we're, we're interfering with evil. That's part of what we're supposed to be doing, to be present, to be there, to be interacting. So the first thing that happens, it hinders the world from completely going bad. But secondly, we bring out the good that is in the culture. Just as light shines and reveals what's in the room and salt brings out the flavor of the food, Christians can support what is good in the culture. Christian presence in medicine and education and the arts brings out the flavor of God's creation. There are lots of good things about our culture. There's lots of good things in the world. And we as Christians are to participate in them and, and, and affirm that and say, this is good. This is from God. This is something we should be involved in. This is something we should celebrate. And so maybe one way to decide on where a Christian can be present, and I'm speaking to myself now, maybe it is to pick an area that is good and join in and be there and support that. It doesn't have to be, it probably shouldn't be a distinctly religious area. Something that is just objectively good and be there. And as we do that, the third thing that will happen is we'll get opportunities to speak. We'll have credibility to share the gospel. We get to shine our light and actually verbally talk about Jesus and invite people into a relationship with Christ. And now supported by our presence, supported by our distinctive life, now people can be attracted to our Jesus. And that brings me to the next application point. Be good. Be good. Not good like don't get in trouble. That's not what I mean. Be good as in be actively good. Be visibly good. Cultivate your kingdom life. Jesus says, let your light shine before others. There's visibility, right? You have to be there. You have to be different. There has to be light that's not like the dark. And as you do that, they see it. And Jesus says, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So that they may see your good works and then give glory to your Father who is in heaven. By living in a distinctly good way, we draw attention to our God. We're called to be visibly good. Now, I'm not talking about pretending or being hypocritical or being pharisaical. That's not what I mean. I don't mean stepping out there and saying, look how good I am. But I am saying that our good works ought to be visible. They ought to be discernible. We have to be actively good for the world to see what we're like. We have to be out there and we have to be active. There has to be a visibility to our goodness. Now, I think a lot of people come to Christ, and some stories are here in this room and many other stories. People come to Christ because of their interaction with a good Christian. Somebody who's different, somebody who's there for them, but somebody who is good. 
Malcolm Muggeridge, the, the famous 20th century journalist who was, uh, who was so far from being a Christian, it's hard to find somebody who is farther, you know, both in behavior and in ideology. And yet, he spent some time, several days, with Mother Teresa in Calcutta, watching her care for the destitute and dying in the slums of Calcutta, and he became a Christian. Now, it's not that Mother Teresa converted him. Christ converted him. But Teresa's life opened a door. It, her goodness, as Roger Ayer says, this is the incarnate goodness that opens the door for truth. Once you experience someone's life and you're saying, this is different and it is good, and it opens a door to Christ. Many of our stories are like that. My story is like that. You know, I, I became a Christian because there was a young couple moved in next door, and I've told this story many times to you, but moved just across the hall from my apartment, a young American missionary couple, Eric and Barbara Hansen, and they loved me. They just were more loving than other people I knew. They were more generous. They were more merciful. They were free with their time. They welcomed me into their family, and that opened the door to the gospel. And they shared the gospel with me, by the way, verbally. They talked about Jesus with me. But it was in the context of the credibility of their goodness. And many of our stories are like that. So what good deeds is Jesus talking about? Well, we, we only need to look at the beginning of the chapter, the Beatitudes, and, and connect the dots. Jesus says, works out of humility, works out of our meekness, works of mercy, works of peacemaking, all those Beatitudes blessedness and suffering and persecution that's the apologetic for the gospel it's living according to the beatitudes it's living christ-like lives it's it's doing things that christ does and he wants us to do now that's how the early church conquered the roman empire it's how the methodists transformed the british world this is why the church is growing in china today this is it's all the same this we know how to do it if you live a Christ-like life, you do good things for people without expecting anything in return, you live sacrificially, you live a good life for Christ's sake, not for your own sake, but for Christ's sake, for others, it changes people. And maybe the lack of this kind of life is the reason why the church in the West is struggling. Maybe. Number four, my last application point here is be together. Be together. So be distinct be there, be good, and be together. Cultivate your kingdom community. Now, it's important to see that you, in Jesus' words, is plural. Jesus is not just addressing individuals, saying, you, this person, be the light of the world. You, this person, be the salt of the earth. No, he's addressing the community. He's addressing the church. He's addressing his disciples and the crowds that are listening in. And he's saying that we, the church, are called to be the salt of the earth. We, the church, we, the Christian community, are called to be the light of the world. When Jesus said in John 13, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by what? By our love, our love for each other, our love within the church. By this, Jesus says, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It's not so much love for others, that's important, but love for each other. 
He's emphasizing this point that we are to do it together, that when Jesus says, you are the light, it's not just me alone. It's not just you alone. We're together. Because our community matters. How we treat each other matters. That in and of itself projects the light. That in and of itself makes us different, makes us distinct. So these are the points of application. This is what the practice of the kingdom influence looks like. We have to be there. We have to be different. We have to engage with people. We have to verbally share the gospel. We have to share the gospel with our lives. We have to be good. We have to be different. All those things. And now the question is, where does the power come for that? How can we do that? I get overwhelmed when I hear myself preach sometimes. And I'm thinking, I can't do that. I'm asking you to do it. I I can't do it. And so you have to ask the question, where does that power come from? How can Jesus say these things? How How can he demand that we live a different life? He must give us power to do that. And of course he does. So where does this power for kingdom influence come from? Well, let me point you back to the text. Jesus does not say, notice carefully, he does not say, be the salt or be the light. Nor does he say, try to be the salt, try to be the light, or work at being the salt and the light. What he says is actually, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. He's simply pointing to the reality of who we are already. this, This is very different from you shine as much as you can out of your own heart, you know. That's overwhelming to me. But what Jesus is actually saying is, you are this way. What he says is that we are to live in line with the reality of who we are, or more specifically of what Jesus has made us. We can exert kingdom influence because we ourselves are influenced by the king. Now listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says, The Lord who said, You are the light of the world, also said, I am the light of the world. These two statements must always be taken together, since the Christian is only the light of the world because of his relationship to him who is himself the light of the world. In other words, it is this extraordinary teaching of the mystical union between the believer and his Lord. Lloyd-Jones says there's this teaching of mystical union, this this super connection between us and Christ. His nature enters into us so that we become, in a sense, what he himself is. His nature enters into us so that we become, in a sense, what he himself is. So when Jesus says, you are the light of the world, you are the salt of the earth, what he's saying is that I am in you and you be who you are. He's saying, work it out. So do those things, follow my application points, but do that out of the richness of who you already are in Christ. It's his light that shines. See, it's not ours. It's his flavor that comes through us. So we live out our union with Christ. And the more we are affected by Jesus, the more brightly we will shine and the more flavorful we will become. Now, this connection is all over the scriptures. If you look at scripture and you read and you read at the, the ethical commands, 
and you read of the demands of the Christian life, both the Old and New Testament, you will often, almost always, find a connection to who God is himself and what he's doing for us and through us. I am the Lord. Do that, right? In the Old Testament. Now here's the New Testament, Ephesians 5.8. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See what Paul is saying? You used to be darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. God did something for you and you became light. Something happened to you. You've connected to Christ and now his light has become your light. You are light in the Lord and now walk as children of light. I'm walking as a child of light because I am light in Christ, because he did something for me. I'm different. 2 Corinthians 2.15 says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are the aroma of Christ. How do you start smelling like Christ? It's by being with him, right? It's by being like him. It's by him influencing your life, by him changing you to be Christ-like, and then you become the aroma for both that are being saved and those who are perishing. So I'll leave you with this. Do you know the king? Do you know the king? If you are a stranger to the king, you are a stranger to the kingdom. You cannot have kingdom influence unless you are living in a relationship with the king. So look at Jesus now. Is he not God who came into the world as a man? The most distinct one, there's nothing more different, there's no one more different from us than God. You can't argue with that question, right? This is why we can't understand him, because he's so different. This is why he says, I am holy, three times holy, because he is different. But that God came into our world. The distinct became part of our world. He is here. He says, I'm going to be present in your world. I'm going to be present with you, and you will see my glory. It's an amazing thing that Jesus did. So he came in, the distinct came into our world, incarnated as a human being, lived with us, and we know him as one of us. His presence, his good work on the cross and in the empty tomb rescues the world. The reason the world is not judged, the reason the world is not completely obliterated is because Jesus came, because Jesus holds it together. Because Jesus gives us hope of survival through the cross and the empty tomb. Has Jesus not forever united himself to us by grace? He came and he said, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to be like you. And you are going to be like me. We're going to be together forever. And all of that is available to us by grace. If you've experienced that, as Lloyd-Jones calls it, mystical union with Christ, you are a believer you are part of his kingdom, and you have kingdom influence on others. And the, the more you cultivate that union, the more you become like Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, the more you understand his gracious work on the cross, the more you understand the life-given power of the resurrection, the more you experience that, the more good you're going to be for the world. And if you don't know that, if you have not experienced that, there's nothing good you can do in the world, really. Not really. You need Jesus. You need to know the king to be part of his kingdom and to have kingdom 
influence. So do you know the king? Let me pray and then we'll come to the table. As we come to the table and take communion, this is a time for us to reflect on who we are in Christ. Are we in Christ? Are we part of his kingdom? And what does he want us to do?